Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. Last week we began this series called Transforming the Spaces We Inhabit by the Power of the Gospel. And for those of you who know, that's our mission statement. So much uh, do we believe this is important that we've actually put it on the wall uh, in the lobby. And if you didn't notice, you can thank Abby Smith for all of her work. Where did she go? She, oh, okay, okay. She's ushering. Does everything. We hire Abby as, a, as a, an admin, and she just does literally everything. But uh, the stuff in the, in the lobby, there she is. The stuff in the lobby that of, of our mission statement is all thanks to her. So you can thank her for her persistence in, in putting that on the wall. Um, but we thought it would be important to preach sort of through our mission and sort of the way we think about discipleship. That's the whole point of this series, is to ta- tell you about our mission, what it is that we think God has called us to do, and then how it is that we think we're going to get there. And so over the next three weeks, this week and the following two, you're going to hear some, some portions of what we've landed on as a discipleship structure. And Jerry, at the end of this series, is going to show you pictorially uh, what that looks like. And you're going to see and hear about it over and over and over. I told Evan my goal is that every one of you would know our mission statement and you roll your eyes at me whenever I say, what is it? Which is what our staff does. They all roll their eyes at me and, and they know it. But... If you were here last week, I talked about this last half of the series, or the last half of the line, which is, by the power of the gospel. We want to transform the spaces we inhabit by the power of the gospel. And I sort of unpacked that a little bit, and if you were here, if you missed it, it's on the podcast, you can catch it, and actually, Danny's been working on a live stream, so theoretically, you can also find it on YouTube. Um, Just don't judge us for how we're figuring all the things out. Um, But as a summary of what I talked about last week, what I said was that we tend to truncate the gospel. You know what that word means? Truncate, like shorten it, like abbreviate it, and sort of like, you know, we're Americans, right? We got to get it fast. We don't need to like go through the whole thing. Just, just give, me, give me the essentials. And so we tend to shorten the gospel. And the way we shorten the gospel is we say things like, well, the goal of the gospel is really just to get you to heaven when you die, or at least keep you out of hell right? And that's the gospel, is that you're saved from hell for heaven. And this is the essence, which of course, as I said last week, is not the gospel that Jesus preached. And I think he has the authority over what, what the gospel is. Or the other thing that we would say is maybe that, uh, that we believe that the gospel is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we would say, well, that's the, that's the gospel, that you're saved from your sins because Jesus died. Again, not the gospel Jesus preached, but that's the sort of the, the, the shortened version. But the gospel that Jesus preached is that the kingdom of God has come. That the long-awaited Jewish Messiah has come and has begun the jubilee of God. That God is now setting things to right that have been made wrong. This is the gospel that Jesus preached. Of course, the gospel that Jesus preached prompts some questions. One of which is, how do sinful people get to participate in the kingdom of God? If the kingdom has come and God and sin can't coexist, how do sinful people get to participate? Of course, that's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Or what happens to these sinful people who have been redeemed and are part of the kingdom when they die? 
the answer to which is you'll depart and be with Jesus, who is in heaven, right? So these are answers to the actual gospel, but they themselves are not the gospel. And the way I finished last week, which is really where we're going to pick up this week, is that the gospel actually propels us into people groups. As we ourselves are rescued by Jesus and brought into the kingdom of God, that we become kingdom people, we become bearers of this good news that God is making all things new again. Like I said at the end of the message last week, it puts us in places that we're uncomfortable. Anybody work in a place you're uncomfortable? I won't let your boss see this, I promise. Hey, you work here. (laughs) You can't do that. But you, God puts you in places, what I said last week, God puts you in places on purpose that the gospel might come through you into the place that you find yourself. And for many of us, we're in places that we just, they don't make us happy or they make us uncomfortable. We, we get put around people who look different than us, who vote different than us, who are of a different socioeconomic status and we're uncomfortable. And God puts us there on purpose. And we get compelled to live these authentic kingdom lives in places that transformation might come through us into the places that we find ourselves. That's the essence of the mission. But here's the thing that I think probably most of us would be able to identify with a little bit. How do you feel when you're in a place where you're uncomfortable? You feel uncomfortable. And that it's really, really difficult when we find ourselves in places that we're uncomfortable to live completely authentic kingdom lives, isn't it? Isn't it really hard to be who you intend to be everywhere? You meet Jesus, he he saves you and, and begins to transform your life, and then you go back to your workplace, and you're like, wait a minute, it's really hard to be this kingdom person in the world. It's really, really hard to be the person God calls you to be in every space you find yourself. You know, I remember when I discovered this. When I gave my life to Jesus, I I wanted everybody to know about Jesus. I wanted everybody to know, like, this is the best news ever. I want everybody to know this. And when I landed in the vineyard in 2007, they were like, this is actually, the way this works is you become the person through whom people get reached. And I was like, oh, that must mean I live my faith life in every sphere of my life, right? And so I would go to my workplace intending to, see, to have people see Jesus when I was at work, and I would just get beat down. It's hard, right? If you've ever tried to do this for real, it's hard. And so I would land in my small group every, uh, every week, and I, we'd break up at the end. Whoever was teaching, it really didn't really matter what they were teaching on. We'd get to the end, and we'd break up, men and women, and I'd go with the guys, and I'd be like, I don't know how to do this. I feel like every day of my life, I'm trying to live this kingdom life, and yet every day of my life, I do a horrible job, right? I do a horrible job, and I feel like I say things that I don't mean to say or shouldn't say. I think things that I shouldn't think. I go along with jokes that are just I shouldn't go along with, right? It's hard to live this way. And they'd pray for me, lay hands on me, pray for me, send me out, and I'd be full of power. And by the next week, I'm like, I don't know if I'm even saved anymore, right? You guys been there? It's like, as soon as you try to do this, as soon as you become missional in your actual life, it's really, really hard. 
I'd feel like a failure. Something was wrong. Here's the thing that would happen. I have experienced encounters with Jesus that have radically altered the way my life works. But then I'd end up with an interaction with somebody, and somebody else would show up. You ever see that? You're like, oh, no, 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 the person I am on Sunday, if you would just meet that guy, if you could just meet the person I am on Sunday, man, you would love Jesus. But I would be in these spaces with people who made me really uncomfortable, and I know that I'm supposed to share the gospel with them. I'm supposed to be a kingdom person in this space, but somebody else would show up. And that somebody else looked a lot like the person I was before I met Jesus. And I couldn't understand what was happening. What in the world's going on? How is it that even though I've met Jesus and I'm a new creation in Christ, how come I still look the same? I couldn't understand it. It's hard to be a kingdom person that demonstrates and shares the gospel, especially when you're in places you're uncomfortable, especially when you're in places when you're stressed out. Take a look at the last two years in this country. Everybody's stressed out. How many people look like kingdom people? Very few. Even people who claim to be. And the reason it's hard, here's the secret answer, the reason it's hard is because when you're in a place where you're really stressed out and you're really uncomfortable, all the baggage comes along. The person you used to be shows up. And the reason it's hard isn't primarily about the other person. It's not primarily about the person who makes me uncomfortable. It's actually really about what's going on under the surface in my heart and the ways that I'm interacting with this person. Today, I want to talk about the essential nature, nature, the essential nature of emotional health in the spread of the gospel, the essential nature. I'm calling this message, the role of emotional health in the spread of the gospel. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at scripture. And Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come in greater measure. And Jesus, I'm aware that even as we talk about this subject, there's all kinds of ways that the enemy would want to stir it and twist it. But God, I pray that you would protect us, that this would be a space where you could speak to our hearts. God, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would put your words in my mouth. And I pray, God, that I would be able to communicate clearly what you've given me to say. Would you put power on this message in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. You can turn there in your Bible or scroll there in your device. Or by osmosis, you can soak it up by the screen. When I was a kid, you couldn't sit too close, so we just just make it really big. Uh, And we're going to look at Galatians 2. Galatians is this letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church he planted in Galatia. And he's he's, uh, making a case, but he shares this story of an interaction he had with the Apostle Peter. And in this letter, he refers to Peter as Cephas, which is the name that Jesus gave him. And we're going to read verses 11 through 21. Galatians 2, 11 through 21. Here's what we read. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You know, before we talk about this story, I need to give you a little bit of background It's beautiful when the Bible references an account, sort of alludes to an account in multiple places. And that's what actually happens here, where in the the book of Acts, Luke records, sort of doesn't record this interaction exactly, but he records the follow-on in Luke, or I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 15, where Luke says this, verse 1, he says, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So Luke is referring to this same thing, kind of at a a bigger view, as Paul is referring to having been in the encounter. And initially, all of the Christians were Jews. When Jesus came, initially, all the Christians were Jewish. And so a question about what happens with the law, like every Jewish male was circumcised. There's no question about whether you should or shouldn't get circumcised. It wasn't an issue. There's no question as to what we do. Because we're all Jewish people, it's a continuation of our Jewish faith. It is just that the Messiah has now come. But as you continue down the book of Acts, what you find is that eventually Gentiles, that's everybody else. There's Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, everybody's not Jewish. The Gentiles start to hear the message. And they start to believe in Jesus and it creates a problem. The church has to deal with this problem. And the problem that was created is what do we do with these Gentiles who believe? Like, here's the problem. If the gospel is the good news that the Jewish Messiah has come to begin the Jubilee of God, if it is our Jewish Messiah that has come to set all things new, if you want to be a part of the the community of Jubilee people, don't you have to become Jewish? That's the problem that they deal with. And the argument that these people are making is they have to become Jewish. They have to get circumcised. They have to become fully Jewish. They have to keep the food laws. And this creates an argument. You see, as God revealed himself to the nation of Israel, he gave them Torah, the law. And the intent of the law was to set Jewish people apart to make them apart from all the other nations, that all nations would begin to know that the God of the Jews was the the true God. 
And so all of their laws intended to set them apart, to make them distinct. And part of the function of the laws was so that they would not adopt the gods of the other people. So it set them all apart. And that's the, that was the, the function of the law. So Jewish people, just by virtue of the law, were set apart. And one of the implications was that Jews were not supposed to eat with Gentiles. Don't share table fellowship with these sinful people, lest you become sinful. Lest you adopt their gods. Lest you eat uh, food that was sacrificed to an idol. Don't eat with them. And so that was the, the idea. But in Acts 10, God makes it very clear to Peter. Some of you will know the story. I'm not going to read it here. But Peter's sitting up on the rooftop and he gets this vision. God lets down this sheet of all these animals that are clean and unclean. And he says to Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, absolutely not. It's a good response to God. God says, kill and eat. And Peter says, no way. Doesn't really work. But God says, don't call what I have called clean unclean. He says to Peter, there's no more clean and unclean here. So much does, does this become clear to Peter that by Acts 10, verse 28, Peter says this, you are well aware, he's talking to Gentiles, that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. The function of the law was to set the Jews apart, and God said that that's not happening anymore. We're not doing that anymore. The law has been, uh, the, the uh, wall has been torn down. And what had been, become clear was that the gospel was not only good news for Jews, it was good news for Gentiles. It wasn't just our Messiah, it was the Messiah for everyone. And with that understanding, Peter starts to associate and eat with Gentile people. By Acts 11, when he goes back to the Jerusalem church leaders, he says, hey, I was eating with these Gentiles. Of course, they're like, what? You're not supposed to do that. And he says, no, don't you understand? The Holy Spirit came on them. They believed. How could I stand in the way? And they were excited about it. That's Acts chapter 11. Which is what makes this, this encounter by Acts 15 all the more stark. Peter has had a vision from God that there's to be no more distinction. There's to be no more separation. Peter understands that everyone is saved by faith in Jesus, that they become kingdom people by faith in Jesus. And he had spoken about it, and he had told people that the dividing wall is torn down. And he shows up at the church in Antioch, and it's mostly made up of Gentile Christians, but Jewish Christians as well, and they're all eating together, and Peter's eating with them until the Jewish folks show up from Jerusalem. And then he starts to separate himself. He backtracks. And the person he was before he met Jesus comes out. Can you identify with that? All of a sudden, I'm in a different company of people, and now I'm the person I used to be, and I don't understand. I mean, some of you, you're, you have grown as a follower of Jesus, and you go home. You go back home to your family, and you're like, who was that person? Right? Those are your college students, right? You're just growing and you're becoming deeper, more intimate followers of Jesus. And you go home and you're like, who is this person that I am when I'm with my brothers and my sisters and my parents? You go back and you see the coworkers that you used to work with before you gave your life to Jesus. And you're like, who was that person? That's not who I am. That's who I used to be. Where did that come from? 
Here's what, what, uh, what happened with Peter. Verse 12 says, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. This is important. Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Peter gets emotionally triggered. And it causes him to act counter to the gospel. For a guy who should know better. I mean, we all maybe haven't seen a vision from heaven. Peter did. A guy who should know better. And all of a sudden, he's acting the way he used to act. Here's what I know happens in every one of us here. Every person that's in this room, every person that can hear my voice. You grew up with patterns of thought and ways of being and behavior that became normalized in your family that was contrary to the gospel. It's true for everybody. You grew up with ways of thinking and ways of being that were not in line with the gospel but got normalized. And here's the deal. It doesn't matter how bad your childhood was. So we're not like casting blame on your parents. It doesn't matter how bad your childhood, or how, uh, childhood was. It doesn't matter how good it was. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a wealthy family or a poor family. It doesn't matter what race or ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter how you grew up, and mostly it doesn't even matter if you grew up in a Christian home or not. Because of the pervasiveness of sin, you grew up with patterns that ran contrary to the gospel. And the root of all of these things is you believe you need something that you don't actually need. Right? And, and when you were a kid, you did these things sort of out of like a defensiveness. Maybe there were defense mechanisms. It's like, well, I need to make sure that I'm safe. And maybe they were good things, but they were contrary to the gospel. You believe that as long as you have this thing, you'll be okay. And when presented with the possibility that you won't, like Peter, you become afraid or you become anxious. And here's the kicker. Because of how your brain works, you guys know how your brain works, your brain wants to make a habit out of anything it has to do more than once or twice, right? So your habits you don't actually think about. Do you realize that? Like you drive to work and you're like, I don't remember intentionally turning left and then right and then coming to, your brain just does it. Because of how your brain works, after you've done these things that are contrary to the gospel, a handful of times it becomes habit, it becomes reflexive. You don't actually think about it. You just do it. For Peter, the thing he grew up believing he needed was the approval of Jewish people. Peter's a people pleaser. Right? Anybody else? Don't, you, I don't have to put your hand up. Anybody else people pleasers? You, you recognize this, right? <laughs> you don't have to point at yourself, but I appreciate the honesty. See, as long as he's with the Antioch church and the anxiety level is low and we're all eating with Gentiles, it's great and I'm happy and we're, I'm going to go along with it. But as soon as the Jewish people show up who say this is not okay, he's a people pleaser. The threat is right in his face. And all of a sudden, old habits are not dead. And he starts acting the way he used to act. Peter becomes anxious and fearful. He's afraid he won't get the approval he needs. And so he distances himself from the Gentile Christians in order to get the approval from the Jewish folks that have come. He's not making a principled stand like, I think this is wrong, or I think this is right. He's afraid. He's a people pleaser. And his passion 
If you follow Peter through the Gospels, his passion is really dependent upon his surroundings. Have you noticed that? Like, think about another, another point. You know, Jesus is about to get arrested, and they're having the, the Last Supper, and, and Peter's like, I will die with you, Jesus. Nobody will ever. And Jesus looks at him and he says, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, what? But then as soon as Jesus gets arrested, now the threat is the people who might kill him too. And all of a sudden, he's like, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. And Peter's, Peter's uh, excitement level and his passion level changes based on whoever's around him. It's not just this one instance. And I think if you follow all the way through Peter's life, you would be able to make a case over and over and over that Peter's excitement is largely dependent on who's around. Let me tell you a little bit of a personal story to try to clarify this in case you're like, I don't know if I see that. When I was in third grade, um, it was a rough year for my family. We moved and then moved again. Um, and I was in the gifted class in third grade. And for reasons that I didn't know and didn't understand, I was taken out of the gifted class and put in a regular class. The meaning I made from this was that people thought I was stupid. I mean, what other meaning would you make? You're not good enough to be in the gifted class. You're in the regular class. And nobody told me that I was being moved for any other reason. Nobody told me any reason why I was being moved. And it wasn't like we made a, a, a run-up to it. It was like in the middle of the school day, they just told me to pack up my stuff and move to this other class. I felt rejected. I felt like an idiot. So I got to the other class, and what I realized is that I, I had to demonstrate that I was too smart to be here. If people just knew I was too smart, they'll put me back in the smart class. They, they'll realize that I'm not stupid like they thought I was. So my first day in the class... This, this group of people, they were like, we're going to, first one who can say the alphabet backwards was the, the thing. And I, I'm on it. I probably still could do it. I'm not going to try. But I have to prove to these people that I'm not stupid. And nobody explained to me that that wasn't why I was moved. And what happened is I, I, I got set on this path where the false need that I created inside myself, the thing that I thought I needed that I didn't actually need, was I needed everybody to acknowledge that I was smart. If you come to my office, there's a trophy to that brokenness in my life. It's my bookcases. I needed everyone to recognize I was smart. And guess what? That works for a long time. In school, you get really good grades. If you can prove to everyone that you're smart, people are like, man, you have the, the world is your oyster. You're so smart. And it worked. Every room I was in, I was going to be the smartest one in the room until it doesn't work anymore. Turns out when you get out of school, there's not a lot of market for a know-it-all. People don't really appreciate it, especially when it comes at other people's cost. Because if I'm sitting in a room full of really smart people, I'm going to have to do something to prove that I'm smarter than all of you. And the reason I have to prove that is because I think I need that to be okay. That's the narrative that happened, and it, it created this. I mean, this has been the case for most of my life. And here's what I know about every one of you. Every one of you has places like that. 
Every one of you has things that you think you need that you don't actually need. It's sort of a false gospel, right? It's a, this thing will save you if you have it. It will make you okay if you have it. And you live with this narrative that runs underneath the surface, and at any moment it comes out. Like, I need to be liked in order to be okay. And so I'll do anything it takes to make everyone like me, including not being who I actually am. Right? I'll pretend to be somebody I'm not just so that the people like me. And those of you in the room that, that do this, you know the deep shame that comes with that, right? Because people like somebody that's not you. They like the you that you've put out. They don't like the you that actually is. And you'll do anything that you can to make people like you or I need to be in control. This is an American one, almost I mean, maybe not uniquely, but I need to be in control, and so I will do anything I have to do to take control of a situation. That's why everybody in America is afraid to fly airplanes. I'll do anything, and I'll run people over to make sure I'm in control. We're going to do it my way, right? Because I need this to be okay. Or I need to be understood, to be okay. I can't stand it when people don't understand me. They misunderstand me, which makes social media for you hell, right? Because everybody's intentionally misunderstanding you, and they're putting words in your mouth. So I'll do everything I can to fix every perceived misunderstanding, and it just makes you bend like a jungle gym, right? Or how about this one? I can't have anyone who disagrees, And so I go all around my house making sure that nobody disagrees and everybody's okay. And we don't talk about the thing that's going to set that person off because then there'd be disagreement. And there's probably some of you who are here thinking, you know, well, not me, Derek, because I'm a Christian, you know. That, That doesn't happen in my life. I'm saved. Maybe not you, but me, I'm saved. But listen, here's the deal. This pattern of needing people to think I'm smart has been in place for most of my life. I gave my life to Jesus in 2003. Do you know that didn't change it? Do you know I was the same guy until about two or three years ago when I became aware that this was a thing? So I was saved, a follower of Jesus, and this thing ran under the surface that I didn't even know about, and guess what? I'm still dealing with it. It's still a thing I deal with. To stand up here, it's like every week is the temptation, if I'm honest, the temptation is to go, I want you to know how smart I am. That's the temptation. It's something I'm still dealing with. And the reason I tell you this is twofold. What I want you to understand first is that even though you've given your life to Jesus and you're a new creation in Christ, which is a true statement, you still bring your first formations in life into your life now with Jesus. You still bring them with you. That's still the case. And so those things are there. Whether you like it or not, they're there. And the second reason I want to tell you this is because unless you've done some really intentional work around this and actually paid attention and done some very, very, very deliberate digging and and work on it, you're probably blind to its existence. Everyone around you is not blind to it. It's just you. 
And you may only have some vague idea of the impact that it has on your life. Do you know, I had all of the relational mess that came along with me trying to prove in every room that I was the smartest, and I had no idea that those things were together. That I would show up as a know-it-all and have to push people around so that I felt okay about myself, and had no idea that the reason people didn't like to be with me was because I was a know-it-all who needed to make sure that everybody knew I was smart. That's probably true for you, too. The association doesn't get made, and unless you've really paid attention, unless you've done some real deliberate work, you miss it. I mean, think about it for a second in context with Peter. Odds are really good Peter didn't have a meeting and say, hey, guys, just want to let you know, I have this thing with Jewish people, so I'm going to be making my way out of these Gentile dinners. just want you guys to know. I'm going to make a big announcement. Peter didn't know that was what was happening. The thing just works. It just happens. He just stopped going to dinner at the Gentile house and started going to dinner at the Jewish house. And then tomorrow he went to the dinner at the Jewish house over here, but didn't go to the Gentile house. And over a period of time, this is the problem with leaders who don't become aware of this kind of stuff. Over a period of time, everybody just follows a leader. And so all of these people, and it says even Barnabas was led astray. Because Peter wasn't aware of the things that he brought in, and he's just leading everybody astray because leadership works. If you're a leader, this stuff is critical. Because you will mislead people into ditch after ditch after ditch and have no idea that that's why you're doing it. If you lead anywhere, this is important. But even if you're just a follower of Jesus and not a leader, it's important. So if it isn't obvious to you, if it's hidden, if we're blind to these things, how do we ever grow? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? You see, Paul is like ever bit as invested in seeing the gospel go forward, especially in Gentile audiences. They're both working on the same thing. And Paul sees this, and he calls him out. What's interesting is that he does it in public. You see, like to, the, the custom would have been to do it in private, you know, so you can save some face and, you know, a little bit of honor. But and that's what he would have done if the gospel was just that, you know, you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. Because if that was all it was, if that's all the, the essence of the gospel is, well, then let's confront him in private. Let him save some face. Jesus has forgiven this sin. You don't have... But because it's central to the spread of the gospel, because his hypocrisy is central to the spread of the gospel, he calls him out in public. He says, this is a hindrance to the spread of the gospel. Because the gospel is not where you're going, it's who you're becoming. The gospel is the kingdom that you're becoming a part of. And so he calls him out in public. It's the confrontation of someone who's on the same way to the same ends that you are. It's the way we become aware. That's why you can't do the Christian life on your own. Do you realize that? Because you're blind to these things. This is like the big American lie, right? I can be a Christian all by myself. We actually believe that we can do this Christian life all by ourselves. 
The problem is, is you don't see the way these things impact you, and everyone else does. And the people who don't have any vested interest in who you're becoming won't say a word to you about it. You're like, why can't I just have friends at at work? Unless it impacts your work, they're not going to tell you that you're a jerk. They just won't. They won't tell you how you are unless it impacts them personally. It's people who are on the way to the kingdom end who have a vested interest in seeing the gospel accomplish everything that Jesus intended it to accomplish, who are living life with you, who go, hey, do you know you're that way? Hey, do you know that every time someone else has a a good idea, you have to badmouth it because your ideas are the only good ones? Do you know that you're that way? Do you know that you're critical of everything that somebody else says? Do you know that's who you are? Do you know that you have this desperate need to be the center of attention? You see, the people who are going to call you out on that are the people who are invested in seeing you become who Jesus created you to be. And they're on the way with you. you need, we, need, we need fellowship with other people who are committed to seeing the gospel bear its fruit in the world, who we walk alongside with. And it's the kind of thing that doesn't just happen if you just show up on Sunday. I see all of you, mostly. The glare gets in the way of some of you. But we don't interact on a, on a regular basis at a deep level. You need a smaller group of people that you're on this mission of following Jesus with who over a period of time, they go, man, you, you have this thing that you do all the time and I'm afraid it's going to hinder your growth as a follower of Jesus. Do you know that, that that's happening? And if you don't have people like that, you'll just stay blind to it. You need someone in your life who's willing to be honest with you about how you show up in the world and who's committed to seeing you become like Jesus. Because here's the deal, you can't address what you don't see. And this is the point of our life groups. Shameless plug. We're intentionally living life with people at a deeper level who are on the same path that we are, who are pursuing the same ends and the same means And in that kind of relationship, people get to see how we live. It's in deeper Christian community where we become aware of the ways that we live out of this false gospel. You know, someone can say, you know, you make really inappropriate jokes. Why do you do that? Like, it causes people to not want to be with you. You really always need to be the center of attention. Why do you do that? You know, you have this habit of always having to have a story that one-ups everybody else around you. Well, why do you do that? Nobody else is going to do this for you. You realize that? If you have a spouse, maybe they will, but unless they're very, very, very gentle, it doesn't usually go over very well. It's It's from this place of loving community that we discover things about ourselves that we never knew. But what do we do when we discover it? And this is where I want to end. You see, awareness is important, but how do we change it? Look at verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Paul says that the solution for dealing with the false gospels that we live into is twofold. It has two parts. It starts with death. That's where it starts. The way we deal with false gospels is death. Jesus died to put an end to everything you think you need that you don't need. Jesus died so that you don't have to need everyone else's approval to be okay. Jesus died so that you don't have to, everybody doesn't have to agree with you to be okay. Jesus died so that you don't have to have money and power and status to be okay. Jesus died for all of these things and more. Jesus died so that I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Jesus died so that you don't have to be the funniest person in the room. Dealing with false gospels in your life begins with understanding that Jesus died so that you don't have to live that way. And I would say that's the way to start. As soon as you become aware of something, you say, Jesus died so that I don't have to have everyone's approval, so that I don't have to live this way. And that's the way it starts. But the way it persists is love, or more specifically, knowing that you're loved by God. What I've discovered is that every time I find myself trying to prove my worth to people because I'm smart, it's a warning light on the dashboard of my life. Every time I get an endless supply of books from Amazon, it's one after another, after another, after another, it's a warning light on the dashboard of my life that says you have departed from the love of Jesus. You're walking out away from the love of Jesus. And you're pursuing a false gospel. You think that you need everyone to know you're smart for you to be okay. It's a warning light. Because the love of Jesus is actually the truth of the gospel. That I've, I am deeply loved by God. And so it doesn't matter how other people view me. I'm deeply loved by God. And that's true for you. As I've coached emotionally focused participants, as I've taught emotionally focused classes, one of the things that I've seen over and over and over without fail is that the root problem is that people don't know they're loved by God. That's the root problem. Every time you live into a false gospel, the reason you're living into that is because you think you need it to be okay. You think you need it to prove that you're lovable. But it changes everything when you know that God loves you. It changes everything. And when you forget that you're loved, you run to the same old patterns again and again trying to prove that you're lovable. But here's the power of the true gospel. You see, every other gospel says if you do enough, you'll be loved. If you have enough, you'll be loved. If you accomplish enough things, if you have enough status, you'll be loved. If you're smart enough, you'll be loved. If you're funny enough, you'll be loved. If you have enough books, then you'll be loved. That's what every false gospel says. But the true gospel says before you do anything, God loves you. Before you ever try to earn love, you already have it. Think about that, what that would do in your life. If you actually knew and believed and understood that, 
If you knew before you did anything that you were trying to do that God loved you, that it, whether you did this or didn't do this, whether you started this business or didn't start this business, whether you tried to make this, this, uh, this promotion or try, didn't try to make it, whether you tried to be generous or didn't try to be generous, if before you did any of those things, you said, but I already know that God loves me. I already know before I do any of these things that I'm deeply loved by God. I'll tell you what would happen. There's a lot of dumb things we just wouldn't do. Because when I know that I'm loved by God, you know what happens? I actually don't buy books. When I know that I'm loved by God, I can sit in a circle of people who are really smart and just appreciate that God has made them brilliant. I would imagine for you that would be true. That if you knew at the core of who you are that God loved you before you did anything else, Maybe you wouldn't have to pursue that next promotion. Maybe God has you exactly where he wants you, and you don't need that. Or maybe he is calling you. You would just do the things that God has called you to do. Because you don't need to do any of them to prove anything to anybody, because God already loves you. And here's why that's important. And worship team, you guys can come back up. Here's why that's important. Because I believe God has called us to be a certain kind of people in the world. I believe God has called us to be the kind of people who can show up in uncomfortable spaces and not have to feel like we have to grab for validation and worth and approval in those spaces. Not have to prove to people that we're smart. Not have to prove to people that they ought to listen to us. But actually be in really uncomfortable spaces as people who are filled with the love of God. That's what I believe we're called to do. I believe we're called to stand in spaces in this city that are uncomfortable and be people who are so filled with the love of God that we actually can give it away. That's who I believe we're called to be. And the only way we can do that is if we're people who have been transformed by the love of God, that we would allow the love of God to transform the emotional baggage that we bring into the, into the mix. Because as I look at it, a lot of times in our society anymore, Christians don't look any different than anyone else. We're grabbing for power just like everybody else is grabbing for power. We're arguing in the same ways that everybody else argues. And yet we proclaim that there's a God who gives us supernatural power. And the world's like, I can't. I can't get with that. But if we would actually be people who would allow ourselves to be transformed at a deep level, that we could stand in emotionally uncomfortable spaces and yet maintain ourselves and our wits about us, we might actually have something that the world needs. And I believe that we do. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.